Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 24. If you want to make your way there with me, we didn't quite get out of the 24th chapter last time. We left off in verse 16 as we continue to look at some of these civil and social laws that God is giving to the people regarding how to, in a sense, conduct themselves uh, as a society of people when they'll get into the promised land. We pick up there in verse 17 where God again speaks regarding how they were to, in a sense, govern themselves judicially. He says, you shall not pervert justice. Now, of course, that never happens among societies, right? You shall not pervert justice due to the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. So again, here the injunction particularly is that they weren't to take advantage of those who were vulnerable. Uh, maybe to those who are a little more naive, they would be easier to prey upon. The idea of the stranger is the alien there, someone who would be a foreigner among the people of Israel, uh, an immigrant, we might say, someone who's fatherless, the orphan. They don't have someone to come to their defense or perhaps the widow who doesn't have the protection and the headship of her husband in her life anymore. So just to, to be careful that they weren't taken advantage of and justice wasn't perverted when it was due to them that they were to get what was fair. He says, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. So again, God uses the precedent of the fact that reminding them of their past and how in their vulnerable situation that they were shown compassion, that God came to their aid, uh, that he answered their cries. And so as they remember their past and they remember God's compassion and God's help and how God was merciful to them, God says, let that be the thing that's the incentive for you to show compassion to others. And I think there's just a good, certainly, reminder in that for all of us as we interact with people. Uh, it's helpful remembering what God has done for us in our past and how we were once slaves uh, in the world. We were once in a place of bondage, and there God heard our cry. He was merciful to us. He was compassionate to us and showed us help in a time of great vulnerability and weakness. And so we ought to then reciprocate that as we interact with others, that we would extend the same to them, even as Christians in our day and age. Verse 19, he now speaks of really what we could almost call kind of was a, an ancient welfare system, if you would, that God put into place to care for the poor among the land. He says here, verse 19, when you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field. So as perhaps you're going through reaping uh, the harvest and you're putting it into sheaves and piles there. And then you remember as you're gathering up the bundles, if you would, oh, boy, man, I forgot that one sheaf around the corner there. And you recognize that you forgot that. He says, notice, you shall not go back to get it. Again, why? Maybe it was divine amnesia. And I believe in divine amnesia. I believe sometimes God purposely makes us forget things. I know we, we may not always like that idea, but there are times in the same way the Holy Spirit can bring things to our remembrance. I think sometimes the Holy Spirit tries to blot things from our memory as well on occasion. And sometimes God may just supernaturally purposely make us forget something because maybe there's a reason for that. Uh, and here God says, look, if you forget a sheaf, don't go back and get it if all of a sudden you remember. Instead, maybe God made you forget it. He says, for this reason, that it may be provision. Look for the stranger. Again, the idea is the, you know, the foreigner, the immigrant among them 
who's trying to get settled. For the fatherless, those who, again, are orphaned and in a vulnerable condition. The widow, again, and these were typically the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. These would typically become the poor among the land because they didn't have a father of uh, able to make provision for them. The widow didn't have the husband who typically was her financial security in that day, as well as the alien, the stranger trying to make ends meet and get settled in the land. These were representative of the poor and God saying, don't go back and get it. Let it be for the poor of the land that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hands. So notice as they weren't greedy, but willing to be generous and giving, God says, listen, you will never lose out when you seek to be generous rather than to be greedy. Again, we've mentioned before the wonderful proverb that's given to us that he who lends to the poor, the Bible says, lends to the Lord and the Lord shall repay him. So uh, God always assures us that when we are giving and when we are generous to help out the less fortunate in whatever capacity that may be, uh, that God looks at that as actually lending to him, that we're not actually lending to help someone else out just practically, but God says, thank you. Uh, and I may make do on my debts and God will repay that. And I'll tell you, I, I have seen this principle in practice so many times over, whether it's in the lives of others and times, you know, you do things to be generous to help out as a church or a ministry and even in our personal life at times when we've, you know, made an endeavor to help someone who was in greater need, how God, God honors that, does he not? I mean, we've seen that. Uh, when we've done that. And so here God says, this would be a way to help care for the poor of the land. It would make provision for them. They could go through uh, the fields and they could pick up a sheaf there and it would be a way they could partake to have provision for their circumstances. He says, verse 20, kind of similar way, when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. The idea is you got one, one, one pass through. You beat the tree, the olive tree once, any of the uh, perhaps ones that were still green, they weren't ripe yet and they didn't fall off. Uh, he says, leave that there. Don't, don't worry about it. Just take what provision comes from the olive vineyard. Leave what is left. Don't go back through a second time, pass through again and again to try and glean everything you can out of it. Again, the reason why it shall be provision for the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. And when you gather the grapes, same thing of your vineyard. Again, he says, you shall not glean it afterward that is a second or third time but again it shall be for the poor of the land the stranger the fatherless and the widow and you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and therefore I command you to do this thing so again just a, a really great way for those who worked the fields their olive trees their vineyards that they were to in a sense trust God's provision for them. They were to be thankful they had a field to work, thankful they had a vineyard and they had some source of income. Uh, and in a sense, rather than trying greedily, just get every possible thing they could out of it for themselves. And God wanted them instead to have a giving heart to let some of it lay and say, hey, you know what? I guess this is enough for me and what is left there, I can leave that as provision for the poor who just in this very beautiful way, what a great system, uh, they could then come through afterwards uh, and they could partake of the olives or the 
sheaves of, uh, of grain in the field or the, the grapes and so forth for their provision as a way of taking care of them. So again, I, I, and I love the way that God establishes this because I tell you, this sort of, if you want to call it that, and I think that's what it is somewhat, an institution of an ancient welfare system for the poor and the less fortunate, notice what it really is in a sense, it's help without a handout. There's dignity in this. There's a dignity in the sense that the poor of the land, after the landowners or the vineyard workers would go through, they then later on, at a time privately, could go then through the fields in a private way and in a dignified way without humiliation could receive provision for themselves and they could be thankful for that provision. However, notice it also dignified them in their poverty because they actually went out and did something productive to receive what they did. Notice God says, don't go back and get the sheaf, leave it there. Don't go back and take a second basket full of grapes or olives, leave it there that the poor of the land, what, can go out and get it. So it dignified them in their poverty, it was provisioned for them, but in a dignified way, they had some level of involvement. Do you see what I'm saying? They didn't just stay at home and get sheaves and baskets full of grapes and, 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 and olives delivered to them. God didn't say, okay, you work the field, and then when you're done working the field, go work it a second time, and you just bring the basket like a handout and say, here, you're poor, here's a handout. God didn't do that. God said, let them have some involvement. Let them have some sweat equity in it. Let them do something to contribute and participate themselves because that dignified then the provision that they received. It was still provision for them. It was compassion for their poverty. It was a way to provide, but it was a very way, uh, way of really dignifying it in the process. Again, they didn't just sit back and get a check in the mail or have people just, here, spread the table for you. They did something to cooperate and participate. And no doubt this made them have some dignity some sense of worth, and it was a way to appreciate, uh, hey, this guy's got a whole field he works, and praise the Lord, I'm getting to participate in a portion of that because I do have need. I'm in, in a less fortunate situation, but I also need to contribute some. I need to do something. I have to go out and work the field myself and partake of what was available. So again, I think great, great wisdom there because certainly, you know, I, our system doesn't work, uh, and, and I hate to say that, and you're you know, free to disagree, but there's a lot of what we do in our system that I think does a lot more harm than it does good a lot of times. Again, God's heart was to take care of the poor, to help them, but the wisdom of how God established this, I think, has much greater credibility. It's helpful. It's therapeutic. It gives dignity and respect. Everybody's participating, and the poor are still taken care of in a very beautiful way. Chapter 25 then goes on to say, if there is a dispute between men... Uh, and they come to court, so there's some disagreement or problem or criminal activity that's taken place, and that the judges may judge them, and notice, and they may, this is what the judges are supposed to do, take note of this, justify the righteous, imagine that, and condemn the wicked. Well, that's a novel idea, I mean, it almost sounds like, that's right, doesn't it? Justify the righteous, Condemn the wicked. Again, use equitable, righteous, fair judgment that the judges were to listen to the facts 
and they were to give a just judgment. There wasn't to be bias or partiality or you know, you know, uh, undue punishment where it wasn't necessary or, or not giving enough punishment where it was necessary. Just justify the righteous, condemn the wicked, make a quick, clear, swift judgment. Uh, 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 the idea here is kind of a speedy trial. And then it shall be, verse 2, notice, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten that the judge will cause him to lie down notice and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows so keep in mind here there were crimes we've seen as we've gone through the old testament together here so far in the law that were capital crimes where the death sentence was issued remember it was adultery kidnapping there were certain crimes that it was the death penalty but then there were other crimes where maybe it wasn't that severe that there were to be lesser penalties what we might call corporal punishment but notice there was still some level of punishment that needed to be executed upon the offense that took place and the offender notice according to what the judge determined a quick and speedy trial was to in a sense receive some form of of penalty in the form of blows notice that they were actually beaten with a certain number of blows determined by the judge so depending upon the severity of it whether it was flogging or whipping there was some level of punishment for the offender which was helpful that's therapeutic uh, so that the person who's the victim has a sense of release because they realize this person didn't just completely get away with it they did suffer some form of consequence it's helpful for the person who's the criminal or the offender because it cleanses their guilt and they realize, okay, I, you know, I, I did suffer some blows for this in my own life and so therefore they don't carry around the guilt of it the rest of their life. They've suffered their consequence. They can move on and begin to establish a new life themselves and the judge would determine the number of blows that the guilty person was to be, uh, in a sense, sentenced with. And notice, they were actually to beat, flog, or scourge, however it was, the individual in the presence of the judge. That is, the judge was to, in a sense, provide oversight so that it was done in a regulated manner, so that the punishment fit the crime. The judge determined how many blows, and then it happened right in his presence. I think this was good for the judge as well, because no doubt it kept the judge tender in his conscience to what kind of, uh, in a sense, sentences they were actually carrying out. Because you would watch, oh, that's what 10 blows look like? And it was a good way for the judge to stay in touch with what was going on to still make just and fair judgment so that he wasn't overly severe or perhaps at times he wasn't maybe less severe than he should be. He, it was done right in his presence. It was done immediately and swiftly. The process was carried out. It was helpful for both party, the victim and the offender, the guilty one. And these blows were executed again. And notice in that day, no prison. <laughs> it wasn't prison. There weren't, there weren't institutions where you as the taxpayers spent thousands and thousands. And, and God said, no, it's just... There was judgment, there was blows that were executed, there was a punishment that was served, and there wasn't people in many ways, again, another area where uh, you know, the system doesn't always work a lot of times. Uh, instead, we spend money and you know, tons of money putting people in incarceration, they're overpopulated, we never rehabilitate anybody, and then we just many times send people right back out into the world because they never, uh, in a sense, uh, if you would, uh, had a proper healthy way to then have re-entry and overcome so they don't repeat the same offenses. So again, this was God's way judicially to deal 
with crimes that weren't, if you would, capital punishment or death sentence. Verse 3 says, 40 blows he may give, notice, and no more, uh, lest he should, notice, exceed this and beat him with many blows above these. The idea is you get caught up in the emotion of it. Uh, and then there's excessive punishment. And again, that's not something God's favorable upon either. The punishment should fit the crime. It should not be less than what it should be, but God also says it should never be more severe than it should be. And God says, lest there be excessive punishment and beat him with many blows above these, that is to be too cruel, and on top of it, your brother be humiliated in your sight. And God didn't take lightly to that either. Again, just because somebody made a mistake does not mean that you can cast emotion uh, and self-control you know, to, to the wind and just excessively because maybe it's ultra-sensitive to you. And you know as well as I do, that's the way things work. Sometimes you know, something may be a little more sensitive subject than another subject or maybe somebody's a little more you know, sensitive about a particular thing. And so then all of a sudden there's excessive beating going on. So God put a regulation upon it. He said, no, look, that, at, at the max, 40 blows. And there was a, a way of kind of regulating that in a healthy way that there was restraint that was shown. Now, by the time you get to the New Testament, Paul the Apostle speaks of having received 40, uh, 40 beatings or 40 stripes minus one. And what Paul's referring to, and he says this happened to him five times, that he was either scourged or beaten with the 40 stripes minus one. I believe 2 Corinthians 11 where he refers to that. That's because by the time of the days of the early church, the Jews, as a way of carrying this out, wanting to make sure that they didn't exceed the limit of 40 as a way of showing mercy as well as at the same time making sure in case they miscounted, they would only, they would only go to 39 and that they would stop. In case the person counting missed one, <laughs> the idea was we want to be merciful and we certainly never want to exceed. Uh, so that's what Paul means when he talks about 40 minus one. Now keep in mind, who else do we know was beaten and scourged with many blows? Jesus was. Jesus was. The Bible tells us that by his stripes, we're healed. And I want you to take this into consideration. In this situation, a person was beaten for their own guilt. Jesus was beaten for our guilt. He, like a lamb that was, was silent before his shearers, and he suffered blows and punishment, and he took our beating for us so that we could escape the beating, in a sense, the punishment we justly deserve, if God wanted to be just, for our sins and our wickedness. And yet Jesus provided that for us through his great mercy in taking the punishment for us. Verse 4, he says, You shall not muzzle an ox, well, it treads out the grain. So again, another one of these laws that just spoke of humanitarian uh, type, uh, you know, uh, kindness to animals, that they were to be humane uh, in the treatment. I mean, that would be utterly cruel as they used the ox to help tread out the grain, uh, whether it was with the threshing sledge or the ox breaking up the grain to separate the wheat from the chaff with its own feet and its hooves. They would use these strong animals to work in order to provide food for themselves. And again, as these animals were doing the work and they were contributing to the profit and to the production of the food that the people partook of he says look that would be cruel don't muzzle the ox uh, in the midst of it he's, he's working hard he's contributing uh, to what you're benefiting from and he's around that food so don't put a muzzle on him let him partake of what he needs to sustain himself as a part of what he himself is producing and supplying and of course we know that it's this verse that Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 
utilizes as the basis for providing provision for ministers of the gospel and for Christian workers. And Paul says, was it really ox that God was primarily concerned about? Not that he wasn't concerned about, but Paul uses this verse as an analogy to speak of how those who serve in the work of Christian ministry, uh, that they shouldn't be muzzled, they should be able to partake of part of what's provided in the midst of uh, the work of the Lord and working the fields of God. Verse 5, he then says, if brothers dwell together, now this is an interesting thing, it's called the law of the Leverite marriage, watch this, if brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son. The idea is he was married to someone, we're going to see, and before he can have a son, which was critical as an heir, so that your name carried on in the family lineage, as well as, not only that, your inheritance, especially when you had land allotments in that day. So uh, if you have two brothers, one of the married brothers dies, and he hasn't yet had a son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside of the family. Instead, notice, her husband's brother, implying that he's still single, the single brother uh, of the dead brother, shall go in to his sister-in-law, who's now become widowed, take her as a wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. The idea is he was to, out of honor, marry her uh, on behalf of his dead brother and to then, in a sense, raise up an heir, as we'll see, for his dead brother so that his dead brother's name is preserved and the family land allotment would then pass on to an heir for that brother rather than to be lost. It says, verse 6, And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears of that marriage to the brother will succeed the name of his dead brother that his name, notice, may not be blotted out of Israel. So again, this was very critical to them and their culture so that not only the name wasn't lost, uh, but more than that, that the heritage and the land allotment did not, in a sense, get lost from that family uh, as the single brother, you were, in a sense, duty-bound by honor, you were supposed to marry your widowed sister-in-law, enter into marriage with her, and then the first child, the first son that you conceived, carry your dead brother's name, and he then became the heir of your dead brother, and as well, in a sense, became also the financial security for his mother because typically the children would care for parents uh, financially in the latter days. So I tell you, what an interesting law it shows you the, the duty, the honor that was perceived among families, how they viewed marriage and family and relationship. And I'll tell you this, most certainly, I guarantee you this made families be directly involved when marriages took place. Because you can guarantee if your brother, say you were the younger brother or just another one of the single brothers and your brother was dating some gal and he was about to marry her, you guarantee you had some stock in the conversation about the matter. Now, now well, who's this chick again? And, 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 and can I, you know, what's she like? And Because you knew there was a possibility. Should he kick the bucket or get run over by the ox? You knew... <laughs> That this was a part of the, the, the law of the land. So look, you knew there was a, so you like, I mean, what, I don't know, you know, when, what's her family like? And, you know, what's, and, and so you, but I think this was a wonderful thing because there was this realization of that marriage was a serious issue. 
And there was a level of accountability. And I think this probably was a very healthy thing because of the awareness that you may ultimately be the one stuck with marrying her to do the duty of a brother in this honor-bound Leverite marriage, as it was called. Verse 7, interesting provision, notice, because not everybody wanted to cooperate with this. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, so maybe he looks at her and he says, no way, man, she is a dog, no way, just, she is too crazy, I'm gonna, nothing to do with that. He says, but if a man doesn't want to take her, so again, that wouldn't be good because if he didn't love her, uh, it'd be a miserable relationship, it'd be a miserable marriage if you couldn't get beyond whatever it was for whatever reasons, you were selfish or you just could not envision being with this woman. Then let his brother's wife go up to the gate of the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name for his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Verse eight, then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her. Then notice his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders remove his sandal from his foot so that was an insult customarily in that day in that culture remove his sandal and then spit in his face that's pretty obvious <laughs> uh, again another insult a disgrace and answer and say show it shall be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house and his name shall be called in israel imagine the house of him who had his sandal removed so that was your stigma you know, and you carried around the social stigma. You were the man who had his sandal removed. So, uh, interesting, God allows this provision to be in here. He calls and asks for this to be done out of duty and honor and family obligation. But if indeed the, the single brother said, no way, I don't want no part of it. Here you go. Have my shoe. Spit away, baby. I just, I, I, I whatever you got to do, anything is worth not Having to enter into that marriage, just God says this could happen. And of course, these were just a way of public disgrace. Uh, as you you know took the, the the sandal off, the idea is you know someone who did not have shoes was a picture of poverty, uh, and so it was an indication, kind of in a sense of, and this was a social stigma that people would look upon you as the person who did not fulfill this in a sense, uh, you know, practice of honoring the, 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 the widow of your dead brother. And the idea was, you know, may you be cursed with poverty and the, the shame that was in a sense sort of a social stigma was the punishment if you didn't want to perform this. Verse 11, if two men fight together, so you got a brawl here, two guys are in uh, fisticuffs over something, and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals. This is interesting. Then you shall cut off her hand and your eye shall not pity her. I think that's self-explanatory, right? Verse 12, uh, verse 13. <laughs> Uh, you know, we read, is this really in the Bible study? You see what you get to you know, enjoy when you come to Wednesday night Bible study. You just never know uh, what's going to show up in the scriptures here. So God makes this, and I think this is attached here, additional law, right to the Leverite marriage for a purpose. If you think from context, the whole issue of the verses above is about raising up an heir. Because that was important. 
culturally that was extremely important and even spiritually to perpetuate the name again you know the lineage in Israel because again the lines of the people of the Jews were critical that's why we find genealogies and so forth because the Bible wants to follow the genealogical record of Christ and so forth these were vital important things and I think the reason we have this is this is almost the flip side of this now where you have two men they get into some type of a dispute and there's a fight and you know the wife sees this going on and she decides that she wants to get protective so as a way to sort of reach her hand in to defend her husband against this attacker maybe he's getting beat up we're not certain but it just says that she reaches out her hand against the attacker and she seizes him in the area that has direct connection to his ability to do what raise up a child and she in some cruel way and intentions the idea here the imagery you know seizing him by the generals is that done in a way whereby she's trying to rob him of his ability to be able to have a child to destroy his his fertility in a sense and, and god saw that as very cruel very underhanded sort of again hitting below the belt no pun intended in a way that was very wrong and God said, therefore, uh, it was to be dealt with severely. She was to have her hand cut off and, and there was to be no pity shown to her for what she did. So, uh, again, we look at that. I'll tell you something by way of application and you can do what you want with this. But there's a part of this that I see as well, just from a, you know, the specific is what it is. But I think there's a valuable lesson there as well from a marital perspective for wives in regards to being careful of sometimes trying to come to your husband's aid when maybe he's engaged in something and maybe there's something going on maybe he's been mistreated at work or you know there's something going on and sometimes there can be the propensity in very good intention look this is you know that's my husband you touch my husband that's it you know you're mean to him at work and 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 then there's this temptation for wives to sometimes put their hands into matters where they really shouldn't be and sometimes you try and stick your hand in the situation and you think, I need to come to my hubby's aid. He's not taking care of this, so I need to fix it for him. I can't believe he's going to let people take advantage of him like this. Or I can't believe he's not going to do it. Why isn't he doing that? And so all of a sudden, out of maybe even good intention, there's this temptation where a wife puts her hand into a matter that really she shouldn't get involved in. And all it does is cause problems for her and for everybody else involved. And I think there's a time and an occasion where as wives, it's better to say, you know what? There are certain matters that I just need to let him fight out some of his own battles and realize that there are times where I should not go sticking my hands into things and trying to fix or solve problems for my husband. Sometimes you need to be careful, I think, you know, that wives can get into that problem where they potentially put their hand into a matter with their husband. And it's not a good thing ultimately. So verse 13, we'll move on from that. He says, you shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. The idea is maybe a, a, a heavy weight when you're uh, trying to buy product or merchandise so you get extra. It's more than a pound because it's additionally heavy. Or then a light weight for then when you're selling product, you try and jip your customer uh, because it's not a true pound, the weight. Again, they did everything on scales in that day in the marketplace. The idea is having untrue weights, false weights, you shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you 
Notice, pretty strong language again here. For all who do such things, he says, all who behave unrighteously are an abomination. Again, strong language, detestable to the Lord your God. So the idea here is being what? Just and honest in your business dealings. He's talking about the business practices, buying and selling merchandise in the marketplace. Again, they weighed things out on scales, whether it was, you know, flour or products or whatever it was, you know, was something a gallon's worth? Was it a pound worth? And God did not want them being deceptive and dishonest to try and benefit themselves or rip one another off. God's saying, be honest in your business dealings. Don't cheat people. Don't try and rip people off and, and think that somehow that's okay. He says to behave unrighteously in that way or do those things is extremely displeasing to the Lord. Verse 17, he says, And remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. The idea is those who were kind of straggling in the back. All the stragglers, he says, at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies all around in the land where the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance that God says you will blot out, the idea is completely eradicate, destroy, the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven and God says, this is something that you shall not forget. The idea is it's imperative. It's important that you do this. So God gives this instruction here that when they got into the land and were settled and had you know, dealt with their other battles, that they were not to overlook that the people of Amalek, because of what they had done in their cruelty, in their treatment towards Israel and their very unjust, abominable behavior of, of you know, picking off the weak and the sick and the stragglers at the back of you know, the congregation of Israel as they were traveling through the area, God says they were to be dealt with severely and God says, I want you to eradicate them as a people because of what they had done. And again, look what Amalek does. He describes verse 18, they met you on the way, they attacked your rear ranks all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary. And, and he says they did not fear God. The idea is they had no regard for God or that these were the people of God. There was complete irreverence towards Yahweh God in their actions. There was complete disrespect and in and, and just a very cruel way. Again, rather than coming from the front where all the, you know, the, the studs, if you would, of Israel would be, all those who were strong and who had military strength, and rather than fighting a true battle, instead, in a very sneaky, conniving way, instead, they go after the weak and the vulnerable and the defenseless, and they begin to pick people off that are kind of, uh, you know, uh, straggling, in a sense, on the periphery and, and destroy people in a very cruel way in no fear of God. So God says, therefore, deal with them very, very severely. Now, when we look at this, certainly God's giving a direct instruction to them. Uh, but the reason God was saying this was because knowing that this was the propensity of these people of Amalek that this was their nature this was their method of operation God did not want his people to leave themselves susceptible to Amalek doing this to them repeatedly because they would just do the same thing again as their enemies they had proven their nature and the way they conducted themselves so God said I don't want you to leave yourself vulnerable so eradicate them so this cannot happen to you continuously 
So it cannot happen to you ever again. Now, what's interesting is Amalek in the Old Testament is a picture spiritually of the flesh. And this is exactly what the flesh, our sinful nature, does. Many times the way the flesh works is it attacks in very sneaky, subtle ways. If you would, it, it, it exploits what? It exploits us in our weariness and in our tiredness. And the flesh exploits our vulnerabilities. Again, the areas of our weakness. And that's where the flesh comes and attacks us in a very cruel way. It tries to destroy and to rob us of God's best. And the flesh, if you ever noticed, I don't know about your sinful nature, my sinful nature has no fear of God. <laughs> it has no regard for God. <laughs> It has no regard for the things of God, no regard for the ways of God. All my flesh cares about is selfishly doing and getting whatever it wants. And it works in very underhanded, conniving, sneaky ways, just like Amalek did. And God's edict, just like for Amalek, God's edict for my sinful flesh and yours is one thing. Put it to death. Crucify it. God says just utterly, severely crucify the flesh in the new testament speaks about how we are to do that very thing we're not to you know make concessions to our flesh paul says that we're not to make any provision for our flesh that is you make any small provision or opportunity for the flesh all it's going to do is down the road it is going to come back and it's going to launch the same attacks and it's going to trick you up again and it's going to just rob kill and destroy again as it does the same thing that it did to you initially. And just like God said, look, don't leave Amalek an opportunity to do to you again what it already did. Eradicate them as a people. And in the same way, God says, look, there's one edict I have for your flesh. Don't leave any mercy in your attitude in your any area of your flesh because if you and I leave any little area, oh, well, I mean, I mean, this little, I can handle this. And we don't get serious about crucifying the flesh and just putting it to death. That area of our flesh down the road will ultimately recuperate, regain its strength, and it will just come back with a vengeance and it will exploit our weaknesses and vulnerabilities and will only rob, kill, and destroy in our life spiritually once again. So we're to put to death the flesh. Great picture there that the Bible gives to us. Chapter 26 says, And it shall be when you come into the land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground. So this would be the first fruit, the idea is here, that the Lord your God is giving you, and put it in a basket, and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. Remember, initially that would be Shiloh. And then ultimately it would become Jerusalem as the permanent dwelling place for the tabernacle and the temple, the place of worship that God chose. And you shall go there to the, go to the priest in those days and say to him, as you brought the first fruit uh, of your land, that once you got settled in, and say, I declare today that the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give to us. And then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. Now, what, what basically is being described here in the 26th chapter is, in a sense, God saying, listen, when you come into the land and you begin to experience the goodness of God, and you come into this land flowing with milk and honey and you begin to plant your crops and not only plant their own crops, but the Bible says they would inherit fields and houses and vineyards that they didn't even work for. 
that weren't even their own. And they would experience the blessing of God and the goodness of God. God wanted them to reciprocate back appreciation, just to be thankful. And so chapter 26 here really describes, if you would, sort of a, a, a time of appreciation, renewing their vows to God, renewing a covenant unto God and saying, God, you've blessed us. And so, Lord, we appreciate what you've done for us. So here is this instruction. When they got settled in, they were to take some of the first fruit. They were to go up to the house of God and set it as a basket before the priest and say, I declare today that God has brought me to the country that he swore to our fathers to give us. In other words, God, you did it. You fulfilled your promise, Lord. You brought to pass what you said you would, and so we're thankful for what you've done. Verse 5, notice, and you shall answer and say before the Lord your God. So this is now what you were to say before the Lord. My father was Assyrian. Now this is a reference to Jacob, and the reason it says they're Assyrian, your translation may say Aramean, is because remember, Jacob, though he was a Jew, for a time, went to the area of Padam Aram. Padam Aram, Aramea. That's why Syrian or Aramean. This is the area that's being referred to. And remember, as he went there and worked for his uh, relative Laban, that was where, remember, he acquired his wives, uh, Leah and, and Rachel, who become the mothers of the tribes of Israel, Jacob's wives. Uh, and so this is the idea of a reference here in this unique way to Jacob being a Syrian because he came out of that area about to perish and he went down the idea is the people of Israel to Egypt we know the story and dwelt there few in number they were only 70 or so people when they first began as a clan and there became a great nation in Egypt great and mighty and populous God multiplied them tremendously somewhere upwards to over 2 million people during that time of population explosion and the fruitfulness and the prospering of the Israelites there in Egypt but the Egyptians mistreated us we know the story of that afflicted us laid hard bondage on us and we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers and the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression so the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror and with signs and wonders and he has brought us to this place and given us this land a land flowing with milk and honey. Again, a land that was productive, a land that was prosperous. They didn't have to work the land with foot pedals to get water like in Egypt. It drank in the rain from heaven and God blessed them in that land. Verse 10, and now behold, again, this was the reason of the celebration of the goodness of God. Now behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land Notice, which you, O Lord, have given me. In other words, God, I am only giving to you the first part of what you've given to me. I'm just giving it back, God. There was this recognition of the goodness of God, that God delivered them, that God got them out of the bondage and the hardship they were in, that God had blessed them and cared for them and ultimately fulfilled his promise and that everything they had came from God. Like Psalm 50, God declares, you know, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you the world is mine. God owns everything. And there was this recognition, God, you own everything. You provide everything. And Lord, you've brought us to this land. You have prospered us and blessed us. And so, Lord, we're giving back now some of the first fruits as an act of faith that, Lord, you're our provider, as an act of appreciation for what you have provided 
Lord, of all the land that you have given me. And then he says, verse 10, continuing, you shall set it before the Lord your God. And notice, and worship before the Lord your God. And so you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you and your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. So notice, they were to have a time of just worship and celebration, rejoicing, notice, rejoicing in every good thing which the Lord had given to them and to their house. Again, notice, God wanted them to be blessed. There was nothing, in a sense, inherently wrong or unspiritual about being blessed. God brought them into the land and he blessed them purposely. It was the goodness of God. And, and, and he says, I want you, when you experience my blessing, to celebrate that, to appreciate it, to just, to just say, Lord, thank you, and, and to extend some form of gratitude. Notice, through the process of worship, to just rejoice there before the Lord for what he did. And again, just this beautiful thing to see how God did want to bless them. And I think that's important because I think one of the mistakes we make sometimes as God's people, and I know in, in my early days of my Christian life, I, you know, I think I tended to gravitate more towards this. We, we almost think it's more spiritual to be in poverty. And the reality is, listen, there's nothing more spiritual about being poor than there is about being rich. If anything, I would much rather see God's people have resources than the ungodly have resources. Because God's people usually at least have a right perspective towards money. They have an understanding that it's all from the Lord. And God, how would you have me to manage this and use this? Maybe to help somebody. Or, and, and again, sometimes we almost glorify as if somehow it's, it's spiritual to be poor. Uh, when the reality is, is look, everything is from the Lord. Whether we're poor, we glorify God in that and we trust him for it. Or whether God wants to bless us and enrich us. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. I don't understand why one is more blessed than the other. Listen, that's not my business. But the reality is in all things, Paul said, I learned how to be content. Paul said, I learned how to abase and I learned how to abound. And he said, I learned to be content in both. I learned to be content when I had less and I learned to be content at times when I had a little bit more and not to, in a sense, feel awkward about it, but just to, okay, Lord, this is a season of abundance. And just to appreciate, and here God says, appreciate, take time to rejoice and to worship. Verse 12, and when you finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, so this was now a special time, notice, the year of tithing. And have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Again, the idea is the poor of the land. So that they may eat within the gates and be filled. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I've removed the holy tithe from my house and also have given them to the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow, helping the poor. According to all your commandments, which you've commanded me, I've not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I've not eaten any of it while in mourning. The idea is that I didn't take for my own selfish benefit that which really was to be given over to God and his purposes, nor have I removed any of it for unclean use, using it for some secular or different use. Instead, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord my God and done according to all that you've commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel in the land which you've given us. 
just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, what's being described here, verse 12 through 15, notice it's referred to in verse 12, the third year or the year of tithing. Deuteronomy 14 addressed this as well. What this was, was every third year, they were to, in a sense, give an additional tithe, an additional 10% on top of their regular daily tithe of the land, 10% of the land. They were to give an additional tithe every third year, and that tithe was to be used, it describes here, for the poor of the land. So they were to give the first fruits a tithe, 10% of all their land produced, and that tithe, remember, was for the Levites and the priests and to help operate the temple ministry of worship among the people so that they could be sustained and the spiritual presence of God and his ministry was healthy among the people. But then every third year, they were to give an additional tithe in that third year only. And that was a tithe to help out additionally the poor and those struggling among them as the people of God. And that's what's being described there. Let's finish up the chapter. Verse 16, he says, This is the day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore, you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. Listen here to the language, the emphasis upon obedience. You shall be careful to observe these things all your heart, all your soul. Today, you've proclaimed the Lord to be your God. And that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments that you will obey his voice. Also today, look how God blesses obedience. Also today, the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people, just as he promised you that you should keep all his commandments and that he will set you on high above all nations which he has made in praise, in name, and in honor, and that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. So notice, God is telling Israel that if they would live according to his ways as a nation, they would be blessed. All these things that we've been reading these past weeks, these chapters in Deuteronomy, civil laws and social laws and how they were to handle marriage and divorce and manage their money even. And God said, and their business practices, being ethical and their judicial ways of handling uh, you know, situations. God says, if you operate in my ways and you live according to my design, then he says, I will bless your nation. And you will be a nation that rises above other nations in strength and honor and respect and will be blessed. And what, what an interesting thing. God says to us that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And God blesses obedience and God blesses when we do things his way. But see, the same is true even if a nation doesn't do it. God tells us in First Peter that we as Christians are a holy and spiritual nation. We're a spiritual people, a royal priesthood. And God has given us a special calling and he says to us, listen, as my people, if you will live my way, not the ways of the world, in how you handle your money, how you do marriage, how you execute all the different proceedings, and God says, if you'll do things my way and listen to my voice and follow my commands, God says, you'll be blessed. I'll honor that and you'll experience God's best in your life. Amen?